Okay, thank you so much for joining us for this month's From the Field Farm Chat. Today we are going to be talking with George Anor from the University of Minnesota. Mm -hmm. And he is talking about FODMAPs. So that's a an, an acronym or an initialization, I guess. Yep. Um, that none of us really know what that means. <laughs> But we know it has a lot to do. It's um, kind of becoming a bigger topic in in wheat food with consumers and relating directly to the digestibility of wheat. So we record this uh, presentation, this conversation, and we post it to our YouTube channel and our podcast platforms later in the day. So you can you can access it there and share it with other people who you might think would be interested in this topic, um, and then also go back to reference it in the future. And because this is a conversation, I want to make sure that you know that you can ask questions directly to George. So please don't be shy with that. You can just unmute your microphone or you can use the hand raising reaction down at the bottom of your screen, but um, I will be paying attention for anyone's microphone to come off mute. And you can also just send a chat and I'll make sure to ask the question from the chat if you're more comfortable doing that. So that's pretty much it in a nutshell. I guess I should introduce myself. I'm Brittany, Executive Director of the Idaho Wheat Commission. George, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself and tell us a little bit about this research into wheat digestibility and FODMAPs and do your best to explain to us what FODMAPs are. All right, thank you, Brittany. So I'm George Anor. I'm an assistant professor here at the Food Science and Nutrition Department at the University of Minnesota. I'm originally from Ghana. I did my bachelor's and master's at the University of Ghana and then did my PhD at the University of Guelph in Ontario, Canada. I've been here at the university for about six years and I've been working a lot on wheat. Uh, cereal science and technology is my uh, area of uh, speciality. So today we'll be talking about wheat digestibility and the presentation is entitled Tackling Wheat Digestibility, FODMAP Levels in Wheat Lines. So this presentation is based on a study that was done by myself, uh, James Anderson, uh, who is a, um, a wheat breeder here in Minnesota, and also Prabhim Bagain, who is a, a, a researcher here at the University of Minnesota. Okay. All right. So why is this study important, or why did we do this? Uh, it is all based on the fact that the per capita consumption of wheat in the US is actually declining. Uh, wheat consumption was 225 pounds per capita in 1879. That seems like a long time ago. It declined until 11, uh, 110 pounds in 1972. It kind of rebounded back to 146 in the year 2000. And while everybody was happy, it was realized that much of this rebound was due to the popularization of flour-based foods such as pizzas and also the advent of bread machines. Everybody was kind of making their own bread at home. 
But if you look at this graph, it is obvious that the decline is not stopping. It is actually going down. Even in 2019 and 2020, we've seen that the per capita consumption of wheat is gradually going down. And uh, this should be a source of concern for anybody who is involved in wheat production or wheat processing, because if consumers are not eating the wheat, then obviously we're going to have a problem with farmer profitability and productivity. So let's do a little bit of uh, economics here. I'm not an economist, but I kind of put a little bit of thing together for us to have a feel of what we are really dealing with when we say wheat consumption is going down. So let's say from 1879 to now we've lost uh, 93.21, okay? Let's assume everybody in the US consumes wheat, right? If we multiply that by 92.93.2, that is a lot of wheat that we've lost. I mean, people have not consumed that amount of wheat. And if we convert it into bushels, that is almost 497 million bushels in lost demand. And if we convert it to acres, that is about 7.1 million acres of wheat that has been lost just because people are not consuming the wheat. Now, this aside, we also have issues with the actual production of wheat due to climate change and all the issues we are having with the environment. I know for sure that Idaho wheat production plummeted 32% this year compared to last year. So we are having people not eating the wheat and we are also having production just going down due to environmental concerns. So why the decline in wheat? There are a lot of reasons why. Uh, I will call some of these as fat diets. Uh, basically, people are moving away from starches in their diet because it has been seen as uh, resulting in uh, putting on weight. So there's what we call paleo diet, where people are eliminating gluten totally, of course, because of celiac disease. We have ketogenic diet, where people are eating high fat, low carb, keto diets, and then we have whole 30, where people are eating pretty much vegetables and fruits and not for 30 days. Now, all this are leading to the fact that as people shift away from starches, they move away from grains, and wheat is one of those grains that actually suffers a lot. Of course, we all know about celiac disease, uh, even though it affects pretty much like 1% of the US population, it's a huge thing in the US. And this has resulted in a huge, huge increase in the gluten-free market, which is exploding because people are just moving away from wheat because of celiac disease. Of course, gluten is also found in other grains, rye and barley, and not just in wheat, but people always associate a celiac disease with wheat rather than the other grains, which is unfortunate. The other thing that we think about is what we call non-allergy, non-celiac sensitivity. So these are abdominal symptoms that are caused when people ingest uh, gluten-containing cereals. Now, the SCWS is not necessarily caused by celiac disease or gluten proteins. It's just people react to other things in the wheat. And they also get symptoms that are similar in some cases to what they get from celiac disease. So this is also a problem. And when people have abdominal pains, they obviously think it's celiac disease or they just stay away from wheat in general. 
So when we look at the NCWS, uh, what we think are the major corporates are the FODMAPs and the ATIs, okay? So FODMAPs is an acronym for fermentable, oligo, dye, and monosaccharides, and polyols. It's a long, long acronym, but it's basically, it's made up of very small or simple sugars that are not easily digestible, uh, that are not easily digested by humans. So they cause a lot of discomfort when they get into our large intestines. The other one is ATIs, and I'm going to explain a little bit what they mean. So as I said, fermentable oligo monosaccharides and polyols, these are basically sugars that are made up from fructose, lactose, what we call fructo and galacto oligosaccharides. We also have what we call polyols or sugar alcohols, uh, sorbitol, mannitol, xylitol, and maltitol. Some of these sugar alcohols are actually used in foods where uh, they are being sold as zero calories or low calories. So these sugar alcohols do not provide any calories, but for sure, if you take a lot of these sugar alcohols, they result in a lot of laxative effect. So if you buy a lot of these chewing gums that have a lot of these sugar alcohols and you eat a bunch of it, you definitely would have some problems with your digestive system. And galacto-oligosaccharides and these fructo-oligosaccharides, they are actually found in a lot of uh, foods, but in wheat is becoming a problem because we eat so much of wheat. So FODMAPs are poorly absorbed in the small intestines. So they, result, they can result in irritation of the intestines. They are also what we call os osmotically active molecules. And what we mean by that is they absorb a lot of water into your intestines. And when that happens, it results in laxative effect. Uh, so you have liquidy stools, which cannot be very comfortable. So it is not something you want to have in your system. Uh, it is not something you want to have a lot of in your system. The other thing from about FODMAPs is that they are rapidly fermentable or fermented by bacteria. So when they get into your large intestines, our intestinal bacteria ferments them. And of course, they produce carbon dioxide, resulting in bloating. And we all know what happens when we get a lot of those bloating. So ultimately, some of these FODMAPs cause a lot of discomfort for consumers, especially people who have irritable bowel syndrome. This slide here is showing us what has been found as the cutoffs for FODMAPs in, in, uh, in, in foods. So we have oligosaccharides, uh, we have uh, in, in, in grains and legumes and nuts, you should stay at less than 0.3 gram per seven, or we have just simplified it as 0.3%. And uh, the polyols are even lower. For the polyols or the sugar alcohols, you need less than 0.2%. And then we have total polyols because the sugar alcohols have a lot more other sugars that make up the polyols. And then the other thing is excess fructose. Excess fructose is important in that when you have equal amount of fructose and glucose in your body, your body is able to use up the fructose. But if you have more fructose in your body than glucose, then there's a lot of issues with your body being able to use that excess fructose. So when we talk about FODMAPs, excess fructose actually cause a lot of the discomfort that we find when we talk about uh, FODMAPs. 
and then of course lactose, but we won't talk too much about lactose today. When we talk about ATIs, they are amylase trypsin inhibitors. Uh, these are small proteins, uh, about 15 kilodaltons. They present, they represent about two to four percent of food proteins. So these ATIs are part of the wheat protein, but they are not gluten proteins. And ATIs can invoke intestinal inflammation. Okay, so they can cause a lot of issues, a lot of discomfort for consumers. And ATIs are highly resistant to proteases and heat. So it means that our digestive enzymes cannot easily break down these ATIs. Now, technically, ATIs are made by plants as a defensive mechanism, so that when animals eat the plant, these ATIs can cause all these things that we are talking about now, so animals won't eat them again. So they are actually a problem uh, for us when we eat too much of these ATIs. So with this in mind, uh, the University of Minnesota, uh, the Minnesota Wheat Research and Promotion Council, the Agricultural Utilization Research Institute and Backpoint Foods, which is a private company, decided to work on this FODMAPs and ATI. So we submitted a grant to the Minnesota Department of Agriculture that got funded. And basically the objective of that research was to reduce discomfort resulting from the consumption of wheat-based product uh, so we can improve the health of consumers and also improve the profitability of wheat farmers. The idea here is if consumers don't react to wheat, there will be a demand for wheat products and therefore will increase the profitability of farmers. So what were the aims? Uh, we, want to, we wanted to identify wheat varieties that had naturally low FODMAPs and ATIs, in this case uh, referred to as anti-nutrients. And we want to be able to do this so that we will be able to breed for wheat that has uh, have low levels of FODMAPs and ATIs. The other thing we also did was, aside the breeding aspect, what can consumers do? Can a consumer do something to lower the amount of FODMAPs uh, and ATIs in, in wheat products? So we explored fermentation as a technique to be able to reduce FODMAPs and ATIs. And for this, we use sourdough as the process uh, to uh, we use the preparation of sourdough as a means to see whether that fermentation will be able to reduce FODMAPs and ATIs. So the objectives were characterize variation and identify genetic markers for FODMAPs and ATIs in ancient heritage and modern wheat varieties from different growing regions in Minnesota. The reason why we wanted to do ancient heritage and modern was to see whether we had uh, higher or lower levels of FODMAPs in the earlier varieties of wheat and to also see whether over the years, whether the breeding that has been going on has increased or decreased or kept the levels of FODMAPs and ATIs the same. And of course, the fermentation piece. And we worked a lot with Howry and what they did was to try to establish pathway for industry to implement research outcomes. And they did a lot of work reaching out to companies and the wheat industry uh, with, uh, they helped a lot with disseminating the results that uh, we got from this research. And we got a lot of positive feedback and interest from the food industry, from the wheat industry. 
So what did we do? So for objective one, we got a panel of 20 ancient heritage of wood varieties that were grown here in St. Paul and in Crookston in 2019. And this panel represented heritage and had red spring wheat uh, going back to 1895, uh, pretty much the origins of the breeding program in the University of Minnesota. Uh, they were grown uh, by Jim Anderson and as far as I know, they were treated with fungicides and they went through the same processes that uh, wheat is grown uh, now. And this is pretty much the distribution of the wheat lines that we work with. So we had some heritage modern, we had some Durham uh, 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 varieties in there, and corn, Emma, and some synthetic haploids were also screened. The FODMAPs were determined using HPAEC, High Performance Anionic Exchange Chromatography, and ATIs were characterized with the HPLC. And then for the genetic markers, uh, we were able to, we tried to identify genetic markers that uh, we think were responsible for controlling these FODMAPs and ATI levels in wheat. And this we did for breeding purposes. It's allowed breeders to be able to regulate or control the levels of FODMAPs and ATI in new um, uh, varieties of wheat that are being generated. Genetic markers were determined by extracting DNA, and we did a lot of genotyping by sequencing here at the University of Minnesota. And association mapping was also used to identify genetic markers uh, that we think were associated with FODMAPs and ATI activity. For the objective two, where we looked at fermentation, as I said, sourdough bread, uh, sourdough was made uh, from some of the varieties uh, uh, of wheat that we used. And then based on those varieties, we kind of try to classify the wheat into high, medium, and low FODMAPs and ETIs. And from that, we did the fermentation to see the extent to which uh, fermentation can reduce these levels. So the sourdough was prepared using the traditional method, using the type one sourdough starter culture. And the type two is normally used for like industrial sourdough production. So we fermented the dough at uh, 72 degrees Fahrenheit for four, eight, and 12 hours uh, to, to, to mimic commercial sourdough bulk fermentation and to see at what levels these FODMAPs and ATIs can go as the fermentation period goes, goes on. And then we measured the FODMAPs and ATIs in these samples. So let's go to what we found out. So these pictures are some of the wheat that we grew. They, they grew very well, uh, as far as uh, uh, I was informed by Jim Anderson. And these were all harvested, they were clean, they were dried, and then they were stored uh, in the cold room at four degrees uh, Celsius until the analysis were done. So the, the FODMAPs and ATI, they were done with the high-performance anionic exchange chromatographic system. And this here is a typical chromatogram of the various sugars that we get from the, the samples that we run. So we can have the fructans, we can have a, a DP6 to 10. So DP is basically the number of glucose or fructose units that are in that chain. So this is how the graphs look like typically. And we now uh, integrate the areas under the peaks to quantify the amount of these FODMAPs in the wheat samples. So this is a distribution of 167 of the samples that we ran. Uh, 
And on the x-axis, you have the FODMAPs and it's calculated based on the excess fructose, as I had explained earlier. And then on the y-axis, you have the ATI, the distribution of ATIs. So you can see we have pretty much a wide distribution of uh, FODMAPs and even ATIs in the weight samples that we measured. For FODMAPs, it's pretty much from 0.2% all the way to about 1.4%. For ATIs, some are as low as 1.2 to about three, almost about 3.9%. Yeah. And if you look at the absolute values, you will think, yeah, but 1.4% is very small. I mean, what will it do? Well, there are studies that suggest that if you go beyond 0.3%, then it will trigger these symptoms that I've just explained, especially in people who have irritable bowel syndrome. So it is obvious that most of the weed varieties that we screened were pretty much above that 0.3%. A few of them were below, which is good, uh, in the sense that we could actually capitalize on these varieties that have low FODMAPs and ATIs, and hopefully be able to breed for wheat that naturally will have this low and ATI FODMAPs in the future. So this is this actually made us very happy that at least we have some variability that we can work with. The next slide here just shows you some examples of FODMAP, uh, some examples of food with the amount of FODMAPs they have. Okay, so if you look here, we have a 0.3 cutoff line. And if we look at all the heat samples right here, most of them are way above, right? So unfortunately, wheat amongst the grains that uh, we, we, we eat a lot of wheat has a huge, huge problem when it comes to FODMAPs. Uh, of course, the gluten-free, the rice, the white rice, the brown rice, they don't even have anything or they are below the 0.3, which means if people eat these foods, they probably won't have those discomforts that uh, you would get when you eat any of these wheat products. So it is an issue. The question is how can we breed wheat varieties so that when we prepare these foods, we would have our FODMAP levels very low so as not to trigger those discomforts. So George, can you yeah. go, can you go back to that slide? I just have a question. Um, when you studied the wheat products, are those long fermentation or short fermentation? So the wheat, the wheat, there's the the slide, this result here are just wheat. We haven't done anything to it yet. We just took the wheat, okay. we milled them, and we analyzed them. So when okay. we did the fermentation that I'll explain later, we did the fermentation for four eight and 12 hours. And we pick samples along the fermentation and then measure the formats. And I have results that I'll show you when we get there. Okay. Yeah, so this is it's obvious that wheat is really an issue and uh, when it comes to formats. So something has to be done. Please, that is what we think. This uh, slide here shows the level of formats in the wheat, the Asian heritage and modern varieties. And if you look at the distribution of FODMAPs, even though we have a few ups and downs, it looks like if you should draw a line through this, these dots, it seems like the level of FODMAPs 
have not been increased over the years, at least with the samples that within the sample that we screen here in the University of Minnesota, which is good, even though some varieties pretty much have higher levels. When you look at ATI, if I draw the same line through this dotted point here, you can see that there's a slight increase in the amount of ATIs over the years as breeding has been going on. Now, this can be explained in a sense that the ATIs are part of the wheat proteins. And it's obvious that over the years, we've been breeding for increased protein. So that, that increased protein obviously will result in a slight increase in ATIs. So whether it is good or bad would depend on whether most of these wheat, modern wheat varieties can trigger any of this discomfort. And if we are increasing, we continue to increase the level of ATIs, then personally, I think we have a problem because if we increase protein content, get all the better dough, rheology, bread properties, and people are reacting to the wheat product that you are eating, then they pretty much may stop eating the wheat and then it will result in Cause the, the, the per capita consumption of wheat going down and down and down, which will not be good for farmers. This here is uh, uh, this slide here shows some of the uh, genetic mapping that we did. Uh, these are called the Manhattan plots, and basically each of these dots here uh, represent uh, chromosomes, and we have the lines that you see above each of these graphs represent the point beyond which there's a significant association of that chromosome with the parameter that we measure. Okay, so we have fructooligosaccharides, and then we have excess fructose, we have free fructose, we have inulin. Now, if you look at all these graphs, you could see that, yeah, a few chromosomes were very significantly associated with the parameters we measured but we really were expecting them to be a lot more, we were really expecting there to be a lot more association. Now, these weak associations we see here might be due to the fact that the samples we screen might not be enough to have enough power to give us that association that we need. And that is the more reason why we are very eager to partner with um, wheat commissions around the US example, like Idaho wheat, to screen a lot more of these wheat samples to let us better understand the relationship between uh, the genetics and the FODMAPs and the ATIs in wheat. The next slide is the same thing. We can see that most of the dots, are uh, very few of these dots, which represent chromosomes, are uh, way above these significant lines. So we still have a lot of work to do, but, Having said this, uh, and having discussed this with Jamanda Singh, he still feels that there should still, there can still be a way to be able to breed or manipulate these weed varieties, modern weed varieties, to be able to get lower levels of FODMAPs and ATIs in, in wheat. So moving on to the sourdough fermentation, uh, we did fermentation, we did uh, four, eight and 12, but I'll present results on the four and the 12. So this is wheat uh, that has not been fermented. And this is uh, wheat that has gone through four hours of sourdough fermentation. 
and this is 12 hours of sourdough fermentation. This is the amount of fructans, and you can see clearly the reduction in the levels of fructans as the fermentation goes on, which means that if consumers buy bread, uh, consumers buy wheat that have high levels of fructans, using a simple process such as sourdough fermentation can significantly reduce the amount of these fructans in the wheat. This we did in sourdough, we have no idea the extent to which these reductions can happen in the regular bread. Because in the regular bread, fermentation is not as intense as in sourdough. So that is actually one of the questions we have. To what extent would the fermentation that we see in regular bread reduce the amount of fructans? But at least the good news is sourdough fermentation does a very good job at reducing the amount of fructans. This year is raffinose, uh, and it's, even though the levels of raffinose are very, very low in wheat, and we see the same pattern. The more, the longer the fermentation goes, the more of these raffinose are reduced. It is the opposite for mannitol, which is a sugar alcohol. So as the fermentation goes on, the amount of mannitol that we measured in the dough, remember, this is just the dough. We did not bake the bread. The amount of mannitol we measured in the dough significantly increased. Why? Because the yeast uses these fructans. The reduction in the fructans that we see is because the yeast was using those fructans, but they were producing mannitol, which is a sugar alcohol. Unfortunately, mannitol is part of the formats that we measure. So because mannitol went up in the dough, our total FODMAPs went up in the dough. But there is ample evidence to show that when you bake bread, you lose a lot of these mannitol. So because we did not go to the bread, we can only uh, speculate that the, the amount of FODMAPs in the bread would also go down. So we are also at the stage of trying to get some support to actually go through all the way to the bread and see the extent to which the baking process also reduces the amount of the FODMAPs in the bread. This year is ATIs. Uh, and of course, you see the same uh, reduction in the amount of ATIs. Of course, the extent of reduction of ATIs is not as uh, significant as we saw in the FODMAPs. Even though there was a reduction, it was not as much as in the four months, but still there was some reduction. So the amount of ATI kept going down, which means if you keep going on with the fermentation, you might have significantly lower and lower amount of ATIs in your dough, which is good. But again, we haven't tested on the bread because when you bake the bread, the heating, the heat actually may be able to uh, uh, destroy some of these proteins or denature them. And therefore, we are eager to also figure out the extent to which that baking process will reduce the amount of FODMAPs and ATIs. So in summary, there were wide differences in FODMAPs and ATI contents in the wheat samples that we screened here in Minnesota. Uh, for FODMAPs, we had 0.4 to 1.2%. For ATIs, we had 1.8 to 3.9%. And corn was low in ATI, 
and FODMAPs, and Emma was low in FODMAPs, so which is good. We, however, did not see any, we said that there was no genetic region that was responsible for a large proportion of the genetic variation that we found in these traits, but they should still be amenable to selection. And we think this can be improved if we, if we screen a lot more samples and get a much bigger uh, amount of results to do the, the, the statistics. And no identifiable patterns regarding FODMAPs and ATI concentration versus year of release amongst the weak varieties were observed, or the amount of FODMAPs and ATI did not like significantly increase a lot year on year, even though we saw a slight increase in that in, in the ATI. And sourdough fermentation was very effective in reducing the amount of FODMAPs, uh, uh, fructans, and ATIs. You would note that I'm using the word fructans here because in the dough we saw an increase in the total amount of FODMAP because of the manitol. But hopefully, when we do the analysis on the bread, I'm very confident that we will see a reduction in the total FODMAPs because we've actually seen some of that being reported in literature. So what are the next steps? We need to screen more with samples from different locations in the US. Most of the analysis we did were from Minnesota. So what about other places, Idaho, Texas, other places we need to screen to really let us understand this genetic link between FODMAPs and ATIs. Also, very little information exists on the levels of FODMAPs and ATIs in the different wheat classes, right? So to be good to partner with like the Idaho Wheat Commission, for instance, because I know Idaho wheat makes produces a lot of uh, wheat classes. So if we can screen all these wheat classes, it will also let us understand uh, within the various wheat classes, are there differences? And if there are differences, are they significant? And we also don't really understand the impact of processing. So as I said, baking bread, uh, and then if you make cookies, for instance, from the wheat, do you still have and if you start with wheat with very high FODMAPs, would you still have very high FODMAP or ATI levels in the final product? Uh, we are yet to understand all this. So we are still in the process of looking for support to be able to do some of these works to better understand the levels of FODMAPs and ATIs. I cannot end this without acknowledging the Minnesota Department of Agric for funding this work and also all the people that were involved in making this work a success. So I will end here with questions. I, I'll, I'll start with a question for you, George. <laughs> um, what does breeding wheat varieties to reduce FODMAP and ATI, what effect does that have on the protein levels and protein strength in those varieties? So the good thing about the ATIs is they are not gluten proteins. They are not. They don't, ATIs do not take part in dough functionality. So we have gluten proteins and the ATIs. So if we can reduce ATIs, yes, we may reduce the amount of protein a little bit, which is normally not good for, for farmers because premiums are played on, on the amount of protein, but it shouldn't affect the functionality of the dough. When we reduce FODMAPs, uh, when we reduce FODMAPs, it shouldn't affect the functionality of the dough, right? 
it may probably affect how much uh, sugars may be available for the yeast to produce uh, the carbon dioxide that may be that is needed for leavening. But you can add a little bit of sugar to your bread, which we always almost do. So I don't think reducing the amount of FODMAPs and ATIs should significantly negatively impact low functionality. Okay. Nathan, do you have a question? I do. Um, I'm curious, you've got einkorn and you got the uh, emmer on there. Did you work with any spelt or any uh, corason or corason is um, quite often referred to as camut? No, we didn't work with any of those. And we are very eager to screen all of those types of wheat. Okay. Yeah. So if we can get those wheat, we are ready. We are set up to do this kind of work and we'll want to screen them to understand how- How, how big are. of a sample um, do you, would one need to send you to have that screened? A gram, four or five grams, very little. Oh, okay. Yeah. We don't need a lot to be able to screen for these. Yeah, be, be interested to see because those are, um, we grow um, two different varieties of spelt and we also grow some Coruscant. So, mm -hmm. but yep. we have noticed that people have been with reduced, mm, they've had in, um, digestibility issues with wheat. And that's why I'd just be curious about it is because they've been able to eat our grains. Uh, mm -hmm. Celiacs, no, but. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, so I'm just curious kind of where they're at in the level if if they're um, low, if they're numbers like the iron corner never. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with you. And we've had those comments before where people say, well, when I eat those old uh, wheat types, we don't react that much. Uh, I got an email from a colleague who said, in Europe, people don't really worry too much about the FODMAPs and ATIs as here versus here in the US. And I said, it is this is because for most European countries, they do a lot of fermentation. Sourdough is a big thing in Europe, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of long fermentation periods that the breads go through. So that really can help. But if you can start with the wheat variety that inherently has low levels of FODMAPs and ATIs, then the better it will be in the final product. So we want to really understand that extent, how much these types of old wheat vary with the modern wheat in terms of FODMAPs and ATIs. Excellent. So I'd love to send you some so we can get together on. <laughs> yep. Well, George, I got a question for you. This is Jim Peterson. Yeah. Um, I understand you, your evaluations were on flour. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Okay, so how does their FODMAP and ATI levels go uh, when you're comparing them to the whole grain product or bran versus flour? Um, I, I caught just a little bit of your graph with whole grain breads and it looked like they were uh, on the higher end of FODMAP and ATI, is that correct? So, so how is that gonna go with our recommendations to increase bran and fiber uh, with whole grain products versus FODMAP and ATIs? So most of these FODMAPs and ATIs are pretty much concentrated in the endosperm and not okay. necessarily in the brand. Good. Right. Good. So the, 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 the work we did was on whole flour, but most of these FODMAPs would be in the endosperm. So you can so, do analyses on whole grain that yes. would be 
indicate indicative of flower concentrations as well. Yes, you don't yes. We should be able to. Grow. Yes, we should be able to do whole grain to the bran and then the endosperm to figure out. But I know right. for sure it should be much more in the endosperm. Okay, good, good. Then, then you mentioned you haven't done the yeast fermentations yet. I assume yes. those maybe are underway. Yes. Is is that the kind of work that some of the other other programs have been doing around the world? I know there's other work on ATAI and FAT and FODMAPs in the other universities, but I'm wasn't sure what product focus they might have. Yeah, most of them. Yes, most of them focuses on on regular bread, mm -hmm. but a, a few of them actually. But most of the papers that I've seen are still analyzing the wheat, the actual wheat. Oh, to okay. figure out the levels of FODMAPs and ATI. In fact, one thing that has always been, uh, I've been thinking about and I've always been wanting to do is to just screen, buy bread samples from super, from grocery stores yes. and screen them for FODMAPs and ATIs to have an idea of the levels in this product. Because I know for modern bread production, the fermentation periods are pretty, very short for the well, sake of time. So exactly I don't right. think there's enough time for right. the FODMAPs and ATIs to be broken down. No, yeah. I think that's a really good point. It would be really interesting to look at some very different products with very different fermentation times to, yeah. to get a, a different handle on this in the end product. Yes. Very good, thank you. Oh, there's a chat. Um, John, did you get wheat from Oklahoma and see, I made a, I got one wheat sample. I think it's from Oklahoma only. I haven't received anything from NC and Ohio. So I have the one from Oklahoma. And what class is that um, from Oklahoma? That's my third red winter. That's, that's my guess. Oh, there's no, there's actually no label on the wheat itself. Okay. It's hard to sure I'll get you some, I can get you the details of the variety of okay. label, but I had sent labels out to North Carolina and Ohio, and that would okay. be some soft. You'd okay. get some soft red, but they didn't do it yet. So I'll get okay. after them. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, Ann. Sure. Hey, hey, George, I have a question. This yes. is Rob from Idaho Wheat. Thank you for your time today. I'm wondering, the longer the fermentation process, the the more the the FODMAPs and ATI reduce, is there a maximum length of the fermentation process before it's no good? Oh, <laughs> yeah. So my guess is the more you keep going, you you I don't think it's going to go to zero. It probably would stabilize. We haven't gone beyond the 12 hours to figure that out. But you also have to bear in mind that you don't want, you want the bread should still be bread. Mm -hmm. That's why we did the four hours. We are assuming that that four hours of fermentation should be good enough for you to still get your sourdough bread in a very good state, but still be able to probably reduce the amount of yeah. formats in ATI. One way we could try is to use different strains for the sourdough fermentation. I know certain strains of uh, bacteria or yeast are able to use these sourdough, uh, use these FODMAPs in ATI much better than the one we use for the traditional fermentation. 
So that could be one way to look at it. Can we use a different strain to reduce right. this amount at a much shorter time? Okay. So there, there, there are a lot of questions that are not answered yet. And when we started this work, yeah. we had no idea this is where it is going to get us. But now I am very much interested in really understanding the levels of these FODMAS in wheat from different kinds of wheat from pretty much anywhere in the US and also going through all this processing. Like say, if, for instance, if we make, if we extrude wheat and make like breakfast cereals, how does that extrusion reduce from FODMAPs and ATIs? Extrusion is of course a very intense, uh, high, high pressure, high heat process. Maybe we won't have any FODMAPs in there, but we don't know. We have to measure all those. Right. And for your research, 12 hours fermentation is as, as far as you've done. Yes. Yeah. 12 hours was as far as we went. Yes. Okay. All right. Thank you, George. Um, doesn't look like we have more questions in the chat. I'll give anybody a last chance to unmute their microphone if they if you have questions. And while I'm waiting to see if anyone does, I think it's important that we make note that we're not offering nutritional or medical advice. We're just giving you information. So <laughs> I'm happy you said that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, take it for what it is and don't take it for what it is not. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, George. Thanks for joining us. We hope that you find, have all found this useful. And if you're listening later on our podcast or watching on our YouTube channel and you have questions, additional questions, you can go ahead and send an email to wheat at idahowheat.org and we will answer those questions. And we will see you next month for our next From the Field. Thanks so much. Thank you.